The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Good morning. My name is Darren Smith, pastor of Tower View Baptist Church. Thank you for joining us. If you're a regular, of course, you know this drill already, but uh, if you're new to us, thank you especially for uh, uh, spending some time with us in the study of God's Word. We are in the book of Nehemiah, the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, in chapter 5, ending the chapter today, verses 14 through 19. This is our sixth installment of the story of new beginnings, part six, as we look through what God has been doing through the man, the leader, Nehemiah, and what he has done to this point. Before we get there, though, I just want to remind you, our website is towerviewkc.com, towerviewkc.com. You can find out all sorts of information there, including uh, old sermons and articles and blogs and uh, just about what we're doing in, in this time. If you're local to us, we are meeting every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. Details also on the website. We'd love for you to join us as we uh, meet as we can in these days. And if you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, uh, welcome. This uh, may be something you're not used to, so hang there with us. Uh, we are going to talk to you throughout the sermon at different points about what this means for you. But especially, this is a time for those who know Christ. So thank you for joining us. Let's read our scripture this morning. Uh, this will be from the English Standard Version, Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 14 through 19. This is God's Word. Moreover, Nehemiah says, from the time I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them on their daily rations 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I, and this again, Nehemiah speaking, verse 15, did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on the wall, and we acquired no land. And all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now, verse 18, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep, and birds, and every ten days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on the people. And he prays in verse 19, Remember my, for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for my people. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray together. We're going to get into this text and what it means for us as we seek to live out as Nehemiah did before God and others, what it means to, to live by grace and live generously by grace. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for our time. Thank you for our study. Thank you, Lord, that we even have your word. Lord, you sent forth an, uh, uh, the, your, your, your word, the instruction manual, the, the relationship manual, everything that the Bible is, the divine word of God to us that we may see this. So, Lord, as we've often prayed these last several weeks, these are 
times that have passed. These are people who are dead. These are situations that really uh, don't have much context or remembrance in 21st century world today, especially in a pandemic. But Father, we pray because your Spirit inspired these words to be written. May you help us to mind this, Father, for all it's worth. May your Spirit draw us closer to you. May people without Christ know you through this text, Lord. Move me out of the way. Speak, Lord. If you can speak through donkeys, certainly you can speak through uh, a silly preacher such as myself. Silly, Lord, not because of uh, temperament, Father, but because we really are, Father, doing what the world thinks is foolishness, but in your eyes is the most glorifying thing. Preaching Christ and him crucified, risen from the dead. We pray all this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know, it's true that when kids are little, there's always a couple laws of raising children that are active in houses. And I think in our house, at the Smith household as well. The first law is that no item in the universe is more interesting than the one that your sibling, your brother or your sister, is currently holding or using or playing with. And the second law is that no matter where you are, and it could be Disney World, it could be the park, wherever, there is some other place you would rather be. And getting what we don't have and being somewhere we aren't, that defines child, childishness of children in houses everywhere, including our children. But they are children after all, so they have an excuse. But there are folks who preach a gospel. There are folks who preach something which promises an abundantly fulfilling life, ironically breeds discontentment among the people who follow it. You see, we are never abiding with God where we are because we always consider, like children, what we have less than what's available, or at least less than what our neighbor has. We always think of today as less than tomorrow. But the truth is, folks, you cannot get to Resurrection Day without going through the cross. And Philippians 4.12 reminds us, Paul writing, he says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In every and any circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We, like children, always look to other things around us. We covet them, we desire them, we want them, we want to take it for ourselves because if we get that stuff, then our life, at least for a fleeting second or moment, may feel a little bit better. But Christians, we are to essentially believe that God loves us and, to put it bluntly, has a difficult plan for our lives. We won't always have what we want. We won't always get what we desire, but God promises to take care of us, and in that taking care of us, He tells us to be generous. He tells us to live life with open hands because everything we have is ultimately His anyway. So how do we reach this level of contentment and still be generous? How do we show that we love God in our giving? And what about all this, especially in Nehemiah, honors Christ, and how do we live through this? Well, the big idea today is simply this. It's that God's grace has given us what we have, especially in Christ. And it's His grace that will work in our hearts to be generous with all that we have. You see, be more generous, that makes sense. Be more forgiving than what is required. These are things that we ought to strive for. Be more hopeful than the facts that dictate. Be more persevering than anyone deserves, all because the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. And Nehemiah, in that small section we read, tried to live this out. 
Because if we're not generous with a little, we won't be generous with a lot. Generosity is about spirit, not resources. But what Nehemiah shows us and what we want to learn today is we see three marks that kingdom-focused believers are going to pursue. Like Nehemiah, they will pursue self-sacrifice. Like Nehemiah, they will pursue open-handedness, generosity. They will finally pursue godly motivations. Why? Because at the end of the day, like Nehemiah, we know this life is one we will give an account for. We will stand before God for, and we will give a list, a detailed list, as the Scripture says, of every word we've said, of every interaction we've had. And while we have long since forgotten, may we live for God in this moment so that when that day comes, we hear those great words, well done, good and faithful servant. But Christian, we are not to be like kids where we desire everything and it's all about selfishness. We want to be as Nehemiah was and ultimately as our Savior was, to be self-sacrificing, to live with open hands, and to live and pursue godly motivations. Let's start with that first one. Let's pursue self-sacrifice. You notice here in the section that Nehemiah had been made the governor, and now when he first came back to Jerusalem, he was not the governor. We've looked at four or five chapters now where he was a cupbearer. He's helped rebuild the wall. They've had some opposition. Last week, we saw the opposition was now within, but somewhere in the next 12 years, he's made governor. And perhaps after the wall was finished, he went back to the citadel, the capital Susa in Persia, and was commissioned as the governor. I mean, he'd done an outstanding job, right? And, he, and Artaxerxes, his, his, his king, had known him well. But perhaps he was sent back to Jerusalem as the governor. We really don't know. But as a governor, Nehemiah had a mansion. And as a governor, he had an entourage of civil servants. He tells you there, it's about 150 people. He has a stipend. He has a food allowance. And a food allowance didn't come from the purse of the king. It came from the taxes being laid upon the people who were working hard to pay that taxes. And Nehemiah had the right as a governor to levy taxes. He had a right to tax his people, to levy taxes and collect taxes not only for his king, his boss, but also to take care of the things he needed to take care of in his governor's mansion, if you will, there in Jerusalem. So what was the purpose of taxes? Some of these were to rebuild the wall. Some of them were for the infrastructure of Jerusalem. And it would have been utilized for paying the day-to-day expenses. I mean, think about this. They had to entertain people. They had to feed at least 150 servants. And, and, and also, he says, that there could have been entourages of dignitaries passing through, maybe from Jerusalem or other areas. And that was a stopping point. And as the governor of the city, he'd be responsible for providing hospitality for them. But he tells us in no uncertain terms that he did not levy this tax against people. He was focused on a higher kingdom, and that kingdom was God's kingdom and God's people and, and, and how that impacted them. He did not take what was within his right. Now, it's important for us to see an application principle here. Nehemiah isn't saying that it was wrong for him to levy this food or to raise taxes. He's simply saying he chose not to do so. He denied himself the right. He denied himself the privileges of the office. I mean, this is exactly what Paul uh, said in 1 Corinthians 9. He wanted to speak about Christian liberty, but he tells the Corinthians that there are certain things that as an apostle, as a preacher of the gospel, he's privy to. 
He had a right to live off the gospel. As, as pastors, especially myself, being the full-time staff, and we have other part-time staff, we're so grateful. We live off the generosity of our people. We live off part of the giving to the church that is done here at Tower View Baptist Church, and we thank you for that. But Paul is saying, and Nehemiah is living out, that as an apostle, he had a right to be uh, expected to be supported. He had the right because he had been set apart by the church itself. And so he had been commissioned, Paul was, by Jesus Christ. He had a right to expect the people of God to support him, to give him sufficient resource in order to enable him to do the work of ministry without caring about the worldly things around him. But he chose, especially in Corinth, not to do that. You remember Paul worked. He was a tent maker along with Aquila and Priscilla. And we have no idea how much time that was. But it's a Jesus thing over more of it among you and me that we might deny ourselves in the same way, our rights for the sake of others. Christians, we live, most of us watching this live in America. We live in a blessed country doesn't matter what's going on around right now. We live in the pinnacle of countries, at least in the last known history that we know. We have freedoms to do things. Most people in most countries, even in the free first world, would, would, would die for. Yet we demand things more as Americans than we realize, especially within the church. Christian, there are times that God calls us to set aside our preferences to set aside our desires, to set aside our agendas for the sake of the body of Christ. Even as a pastor, we, we, we desire the church to be something, but we work with the church where it is at. We don't, we don't enact something that the church is not ready for, just like you don't go out and run a marathon before you've even taken a step off the couch. You have to work your way there. But what Nehemiah is saying, what Paul expresses in the New Testament, and what the Bible speaks to as a whole, is that if we're going to be kingdom-focused, God's kingdom-focused, then we must sacrifice, self-sacrifice. And now in the pandemic, this becomes harder because we don't see our regular church folks as often. We don't see or interact in the ways in recent memory that we have before all the new changes that have become our reality, our new normal. I hate that phrase, but that's what it is. So, friend, let me ask you, have you prayed about what you might have to consider giving up for the sake of others in the body of Christ? Have you considered, like Nehemiah, the things that are yours in Christ, and it's not sin to claim whatever those are, but for the sake of a weaker brother or a weaker sister, you say, hey, time out, I'm not going to do that. Friend, there may be things that God has allowed you to do that you are doing that may be causing other people not to walk in faithfulness to God because they see your example. I'm being very general. I realize that. But you pray about that because kingdom-focused people are willing to put aside whatever it is they desire for the sake of the kingdom. You know, in sports, and as you're watching this, of course, in America, it's Super Bowl Sunday, and that's a big thing. Oftentimes, you see people, and we have one here in, in Kansas City, Patrick Mahomes, is a, literally, if all goes according to plan, we'll get about a half a billion dollars uh, within about a 10 to 12-year span. It's just astronomical. But there are times when superstars such as Mahomes in every sport will take back part of their salary or deny themselves part of their salary 
in order that they get the key players and key personnel around them so they continue to achieve at a high level. Yet in the church, we see these superstars doing that. Yeah, they're making millions of dollars. I get that. But often in the church, that's not the case. We're unwilling to take back our rights for the sake of our brothers or sisters. But Nehemiah said, I'm not going to do that. If I'm going to focus on the higher kingdom, the higher accountability I have before God, I'm going to do this in a way that no one else before me has done. I'm going to show and pursue self-sacrifice. That's number one. Not only do kingdom-focused Christians have self-sacrifice, they also practice open-handedness or open-handedness. It follows from what we've just been saying, but I want you to see this as a separate thing. There's a spirit of open-handedness, of generosity about Nehemiah. He tells us in verse 18 what it cost him to live like this for the kingdom of God. He says there was an ox. Uh, this is a daily requirement to feed 150 people. You've got to have some form of meat that's going to sustain and sustenance these people. An ox and six choice sheep, a fowl, a bird of some kind, and every 10 days, wine in abundance. Yet he says there, again, yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy for the people. How generous he was. That would have cost a significant amount of money, which he evidently paid out of his own purse. He tells us about the previous governors who demanded 40 shekels of silver as a daily ration. Now, trying to translate that in any money market, especially in today's terms, is a difficult thing to do. But this one thing he wants you to get, he says that it was meant to be a figure that brings a level of surprise. It's a figure that tells us something about the demand, the exorbitant demand that was being levied about the people just to be in that position. But Nehemiah said, no, I'm going to live a life of self-sacrifice, and I'm going to live my life with open hands of generosity. And he pays it himself. That's the spirit of generosity. And friends, this is a biblical principle. Paul, in many places in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 6, Philippians 4, etc., pleads for Christians to be generous and ready to share. Luke describes Cornelius in Acts 10 as, quote, giving alms generously. Again, in, in 2 Corinthians 9, Paul thinks uh, that the Corinthians, because of their generosity, he says this. He says, each one must give as he has means, as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So here is an example of a person who has rights, Nehemiah, but he denies himself those rights out of his own pocket for the sake of God, for the sake of the Old Testament people. He gives and he gives generously. And there's a measure of enthusiasm here about what he's done. So much so, he's actually recorded it for us, and he wants us to see all this. So Christian, of all people, we should be open-handed. We should be those among us who are the most generous, not only to those on the outside, but also those on the inside. I mean, haven't we received so much? The songs, one of the songs Brother Craig has led us through this week is how deep the Father's love for us. And that's a deeply moving hymn. I love the words. and There's a certain section that should bring tears to your eyes. And I can't sing a line of it. But if you follow the words of that hymn, it really reminds us that we have experienced the love of God that everything we have pales in comparison to what Jesus did for us. And non-Christian friend, I told you we get to you, is that this is what God did for you. When you were poor, when you were needy, when you were a high-handed, rebellious sinner and enemy of God, God himself came down 
to live the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died so that on the moment that you turn, you repent from your sin and believe on this Jesus who died fully receiving the wrath, punishment for our sin, who was buried and who busted out and rose up from that grave, you would be saved. We have experienced the work of Christ on our behalf. And of all people, of all people in this world, we ought to be the most generous people. Non-Christian, you probably met Christians. And you know, it's an old thing. We don't, uh, most people are not going to restaurants right now, but the old thing was after church, the most stingy people who'd come to a restaurant were Christians. You knew them because they'd come in anywhere from 1130 to 1 o'clock and demand the world out of that restaurant, but tip in a terrible way. Christian, all I can say is this. If your life is not marked by open-handedness, how baptized is your checkbook? How baptized is my checkbook? It isn't saying that you have to give everything away. It isn't saying that you can't have nice things. It isn't saying that you can't provide for your family or take a vacation. No. But the question is, at the end of the day, who really owns that? Both in practice and in reality, who owns that? It is God himself. And of all the people in the world, we have been given the greatest gift, which is Christ himself. So if a need comes your way, if someone comes to mind as you're listening to this, as you pray, that you see a need, maybe it's a physical need, maybe it's a financial need, maybe it's a spiritual need, I don't know, maybe they're tied together. But would you ask God, Lord, who is it, where is it, where is it that I need to be more generous? And church, I want to thank you again for your generous giving to our church. This is not a sermon that's meant to pull those strings. We don't, we don't do that around here. It's, it's not unbiblical to do that. But we trust that God will move as he moves through people. But thank you for your faithful giving. Thank you for your, 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 your systematic giving each week because it provides the ministry here. And like Nehemiah, you're showing that your life is in his hands, not yours. So kingdom-focused Christians, they, are, they, they live lives of self-sacrifice. They, they practice an open-handed life, a generous life. But finally, they practice with godly motivations. And what were Nehemiah's motivations? He mentions two of them here. But why the spirit of self-sacrifice? Why the spirit of open-handedness or generosity? Well, he tells you first off in verse 15. Did you catch that? If you haven't uh, underlined this, please do. He said, but I did not do so, the end of verse 15, because of the fear of of God, because of the fear of God. I mean, this tells us something about Nehemiah, doesn't it? It tells us about how he viewed life, about how he lived his life. He was a man who lived with God before him every day. It is chorodium, it is before the face of God. He lived in the fear of God. He lived reverencing God. He lived with God before his eyes, with God before his heart, with God before his affections. He took the Word of God seriously. He loved it. He treasured it. He, he hid it in his heart, as the psalmist says. So for Nehemiah, God was real. He was more than just a philosophical principle. He was more than just something to argue about over the water cooler, uh, as we used to say, uh, on a Monday morning or a Wednesday, he, or a Facebook post. God was real to him. God filled his vision. God filled his life. And he understood there was coming a day when he would give account to God. So he denied himself and he lived generously because he feared God. Not fear in the point where we are, are scared of God, we won't approach him. 
but he reverenced God. He respected God. He, 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 it wasn't a servile fear. It wasn't a fear of, oh my goodness, God's going to come out of the heavens and strike me down with a lightning bolt, as most people think. It was a flail fear, as Luther said. He used an old word. It's a word of love and respect. It, it, it's almost that picture in earthly terms of a, of, a, of a husband adoring his wife and a wife adoring her husband. They love each other and they serve each other. They try to outdo each other in love because they know that they, they, they truly do love each other, they, that they respect each other. So what better things can you do with your resources than give them to the Lord and for the service of the Lord? But there's a second motivation, not only the, the fear of God, but did you notice, especially at the end of verse 18, in verse 18, the sheer compassion he had on people? It says, I did not demand these because the service was too heavy on this people. Because the service was too heavy, he didn't demand the tax as other people did. Because the people couldn't bear it. I mean, go back and read the, uh, the first half of chapter 5 and remember, remind yourself. They were groaning. They were in distress. They were hurting. His heart responded to the hurt of the people. He loved the people. He was their governor. Yes, he had the political authority over them, but he loved them and had compassion on them in a shepherd-like way. I mean, isn't this what happened to Jesus? When Jesus was preaching on one side of the lake, he was tired in his humanity, even being God himself. But he went across to the other side of the lake, hoping to get some rest. And they must have had some cross-country runners back in the day, because those people literally ran around the lake. And before they got across the lake, they were already there. But when Jesus was tired as he was from healing, from preaching, from counseling, it said he had compassion like a sheep to a shepherd. And so Nehemiah. And then there's this prayer. He says at the end of verse 19, and I wonder what you make of this. He says, remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. You know, some commentators say Nehemiah must have been a self-righteous pig. He's drawing attention to himself. And some with an agenda to be sure remind us he's just another politician. Or he's writing his memoirs to sell a book uh, to make money after he's done being governor or that he wants to be remembered well in history because history may not be kind to him, so he's kind to himself. But I think all those are very misunderstanding what Nehemiah is doing here. Is it ever right, do you think, Christian, to bring before God the works you do and say, Lord, I've done this thing and I've done it for you, now bless it. I, but, but just turn with me for just a little experiment here. Well, actually, you, you, you kind of need to turn forward. You need to go to Psalm 35, and I have it in my notes here. But turn to Psalm 35, and especially verse 24. And this is what the psalmist prays, and it echoes what Nehemiah is praying here in chapter 5, verse 19. And this is what it says, and I'm actually going to go there and, and, and turn there as well. But I want you to hear this, because this prayer does seem very self-serving. It does seem very much to be a place where Nehemiah is cementing his reputation and his life in the annals of, annals of Scripture but here it is, 35 verse 24. Vindicate me, O Lord my God, according to your righteousness, and let not them rejoice over me. David prayed that prayer. And I venture to think that not many will pray something like that. I don't want God to vindicate me according to his righteousness. If God deals with me according to his righteousness, according to his justice, I have no hope. Isn't that the problem that Luther had that made him hate God? It's not remember me according to your righteousness, but Lord, remember me now according to your mercy. 
But we confuse these two things. We think God is just, just a big bully out to get us, but also at the same time, he's a big grandfather who has to bless us. But the psalmist, and for that matter, Nehemiah, isn't praying this prayer saying, Lord, remember all the things I've done and vindicate me. See my good works and reward me that I may be justified in your sight. Not what the psalmist is saying. That's definitely not what Nehemiah is saying. Nehemiah and the psalmist have already been justified. They're already in a right relationship with God. He has trusted by faith in the promises of God that all his sins have been forgiven. And what Nehemiah is praying, he's praying, deal with me according to the terms of that covenant, of that relationship. Well, what has God said? God said in his covenant that he would reward and bless certain behavior, and he would rebuke and chastise certain bad, ill behavior. That is within the framework of the Old Testament, that within a right relationship, he expects us to do good works. This is what James chapter 2 is all about, and I think Nehemiah is doing here. I mean, it does make us a little nervous uh, what Nehemiah is saying. Lord, what I did, I did with honesty, and at least I did it with honesty I'm capable of doing. He's not saying he's sinless, because even if I sin, I still want you to deal with me, he says. But what he's praying and saying is that there's forgiveness with God that he may be feared. We take our sins and we take them, Christian, to Jesus Christ. We take our failures and we take them to the cross and we say, wash me, Lord, from all my sins, from all my iniquities. But these are things that I've done and I've done them for you. I've done them for your cause, Lord. I, I want you, Lord, to see that. I want you to bless them. So I wonder what you think of Nehemiah's prayer. Here he is. We're, we're talking about his motivation here in this last point. It's not the last time he's going to pray this prayer. But when he says, remember for my good, oh my God, he already knows God. But he's simply saying, Lord, I did this for you. So you say, Pastor, that's great. I'm glad that, that kingdom-focused Christians, you know, they self-sacrifice, they, 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 they deny themselves, they, they pursue uh, open-handedness, they, they, they're generous, they, they live with godly motivation. But what does this have to do with me? Let's take just a moment to apply this to our lives, shall we? First, I want you to remember that the Scripture tells us to give till it costs or hurts or it isn't actually giving. You see, we can't get what we want or desire because we are giving to the point that it hurts. Generous giving, like Nehemiah shows here, is kingdom giving. Giving from excess is worldly. We ought to be generous. I mean, is there a way in which you can be more generous than you are? Of course there is. Well, let this word, let this passage, this chapter, this example of the life of Nehemiah have its way in you. And ask, Lord, how can I live this out this week? How can I give in such a way of generosity, in a very practical way, that is more Jesus-like than it is just coughing up the money because that's what's expected of me? So give until it hurts. But secondly, I want you to see that you should pray that God gives you help to put others on your mind and to grab control of your heart. Because if God is on your heart, we will give. And if others are on your mind, we will give. Anything else, greed takes hold. Pray about your motivation. It's easy to defer and make excuses, but we are called to share. We are called to give, and we are called to do so, as Nehemiah said, before the Lord. Third, we should give with the expectation that we shall receive. Yes, I know that's easy to take in the negative sense, but he said, remember my God, all I've done for this people. That strange prayer seems self-serving. He's not seeking to justify himself. He's already done this and is giving generously. He prays that God will honor his giving. Did he give perfectly? No one but Jesus has done that, friend. 
He says, I live by faith for your people, for your glory. I gave as I could. When I was not generous, I came to you. And Christian, that is the right prayer because God has promised you to bless you when you walk in faithfulness before him. Look, the old saying is true. You can never outgive God. We give, we trust, we, we, we follow what God has told us to do, and he will bless our giving. But finally, and I think perhaps most importantly, as we close, like Nehemiah, we need to live in the presence of God. The one single most powerful motivation in Nehemiah's life was the fear of God, that he was quorum Deo before the face of God. And Christian, that's what we're called to do. That is exactly what we're called to do, is that we would live with such motivation, with such open-handedness, and such sacrifice that we know God is watching. Not as like a boss standing over your shoulder, watching you do every step of work, but as ones who have been given the greatest gift, which is Jesus Christ. Non-Christian friend, I can't express this enough. We're so grateful you're listening today. But I would encourage you, I would urge you, as we close, that God's grace has given us all that we need to live for God, but to come to God. God is not far, Paul said in Acts 17, from each one of us, but you must turn to him. You must believe that he is the one who can save you, and he will. Let's pray together as we close today. Father, thank you so much for our time. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity we have to gather uh, in this way. Father, I pray that what we've talked about today, the life, the example of Nehemiah, the three marks of the the kingdom-focused Christian, of the sacrifice, of the generosity, Father, of the motivations, would be marked in our people at Tower View, for those watching, those listening. Grow within us, Lord, a desire to be generous, to open our hands up to what you are calling us to do. For, Father, it's all yours. Yet at the same time, Lord, to walk with those principles of providing for families and taking care and planning and all the things, we submit it all to you. Give us wisdom in these intricate details. Father, we, we need it, for only you can provide it. But especially praying for those without Christ, that they would come to know Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you. This passage isn't earth-shattering, Lord. This passage isn't one that, that is controversial necessarily, but it's a reminder to us today, Lord, and help us to remember of the, the, the abiding faithfulness that you're calling us to do every day with what you've given us. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We ask this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Again, on behalf of our staff, of Pastor Nelson, of Pastor Craig, of Judy in the office, and our church, thank you so much. Next week, uh, uh, we will be having a guest preacher. Uh, I, myself, and the pastoral team are here. It's just a break week for me, especially preaching. Uh, one of our brothers, John Moody, Reverend John Moody, we have a, a blessed to have another reverend among us, uh, works a full-time job, otherwise will be preaching for us. You'll be blessed to hear that as, as he brings the word. So please tune in for that, and we look forward to having you. But if you're not a Christian, we really want to emphasize to you, we're here to listen, we're here to pray, we're here to help. So drop us a message, call or text us, we'd love to talk with you more. Guys, God bless, have a great day, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.